but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is Hello everybody, welcome to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. Welcome to a special edition of The Body Serve. At the start of the year, we told you that we'd been toying with the idea of playing around a little bit with the format of the show, and this is a bit of a departure for us. This is our Pride special. Yeah, so we have veered away from weekly tennis coverage. We're not going to talk about what's currently happening. We This gave us an opportunity to do some research dig into some stories that are very well known, some that were totally news to us. It kind of felt like I was back in school, which for me was cool because I like school. I enjoyed that <laughs> aspect of it, knowing that it was temporary. Uh-huh. And that you wouldn't be graded. And that the material was interesting. Right. The reason that we wanted to do this is, well, because, hello, it's Pride Month, and she don't have to explain herself during Pride Month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And also, if you don't know by now, this is a a gay podcast. A big one. A big one. To quote the daughter in (laughs) First Wives Club, one of my favorite lines in all of film. Oh, and daddy, I'm a lesbian. A big one. (laughs) (laughs) And in thinking of issues that we could research and present in this format, what better topic to cover, really? And as much as we knew that there was a rich history, it's even richer. Pride Month is supposed to be a celebration for us, but we we are in a, a pretty dark chapter in Toronto queer life. And uh, I just wanted to look at who we are and where we came from and look at the incredibly varied history, the the things that surprised us, the the events that seemed out of time and out of place that sort of defied what we've been taught about our history. And the point is that we weren't taught about our history. We didn't learn it in school. Anything that queer people know about who they are and where they came from, they had to pursue themselves. So what we want to do is kind of go through the 20th century from the, you know, the early modern era of tennis, like the 1920s, the Bill Tilden era, let's say. Take you through some uh, important figures and some stories that were interesting to us and hopefully make some parallels and find some observations and right through the Billie Jean King era, Martina Navratilova, Rene Richards, and then we'll finish up with Amelie Moresmo at the turn of the millennium. By no means is this an exhaustive project. <laughs> we're not, not we're not telling you that we've we've unearthed everything that there is in tennis queer history. We want to know more. We're trying to learn more. This is uh, this is like the first day of the 101 course, you know? What kind of class is that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe the first week. <laughs> Everybody knows about Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King, and we also know that there have been so few openly gay male players in tennis in, in history. The one that everybody kind of knows about is Bill Tilden. There's Brian Vahali who came out after you retired, Mm -hmm. but there haven't been really any other openly gay male players. And we know so much about Bill Tilden in part, in large part, 
to the work that Frank DeFord did writing his biography. Bill Tilden is an absolutely towering figure in tennis history. He was the winner of seven U.S. championships before it was the U.S. Open, three Wimbledon titles. He was absolutely dominant in the 1920s, so much so that he would lose sets just to have fun with his opponents. You know, he would tank sets because he wanted to extend the match because he was having fun. Uh, he's a he's an interesting character, and I think it's a it's a good place to start because he is a complicated, difficult figure. After his playing days, he lived in Hollywood. He hobnobbed with movie stars. He was a huge celebrity. He was friends with Charlie Chaplin. Everybody kind of wanted a piece of Bill Tilden. He wrote and produced on Broadway. Spent his own money to produce plays that featured him as the star. Back in those days, as a gay man, if you had the means, how else were you going to be able to do the things you wanted to? Right, right. Really? Like he had to create his lifestyle to an extent mm-hmm. and insulate himself from a society that wasn't welcoming. And we know that in Hollywood, a lot of gay men lived fairly openly in that community. George Cukor had wild, lavish parties with many beautiful men at his mansion. There was a degree of acceptance among the Hollywood set. What went wrong for Bill Tilden is that he was arrested several times and charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Basically, he was caught, allegedly, with underage boys. This is where it gets it complicated, right? And he did serve 10 months in prison for one of those charges. Mm-hmm. There are those who contend that he was targeted based on anti-gay hysteria of the time and that charges were trumped up or charges may not have been true or what have you. There's a lot of muddied thought surrounding his criminality. We weren't there and Frank DeFord lays out all this stuff in the book. I don't want to whitewash that part of his life because it is like it's an ugly reality that he did serve time in prison. And sadly, Many of his friends in Hollywood turned their backs on him after he was exposed in that way. Mm-hmm. Charlie Chaplin was really the only person who kept close contact with him and allowed him to teach lessons at his estate. But Bill Tilden, this once incredibly charismatic celebrity and the most dominant figure in tennis for what the better part of 50 years... Listed as one of the greatest mm-hmm. athletes of the first 50 years of the century... Right. He died lonely, with barely a penny to his name, and in shame, really. I think it's important to note the society in which somebody like Bill Tilden would have played and lived his life. In that, this was not a welcoming society, obviously. (laughs) I mean, if we think of what we've experienced in our own lives and what we've seen in tennis with... Amelie Maresma, which we will come to, and what we've come to learn about what Billie Jean and Martina went through, it was that much worse in the 1920s. But even then, we see these these towering figures in tennis still able to carve out a niche for themselves in in society as not totally closeted. A lot of these mm-hmm. folks were living in a in a glass closet. And this is what kind of defies expectations because I remember when I was like a younger gay. (laughs) These are the things that surprise me is that someone like Bill Tilden, to a point, lived openly in his community until it became untenable, until he was 
utterly shunned. And we'll see that again and again. We see that with Helen Jacobs. Right, who played in the same era, was the great rival to Helen Wills Moody, who, again, is one of the most dominant tennis players in history. Her record is unbelievable. She went like seven or eight years without losing a match. And Helen Jacobs didn't really win that many matches against Helen Wills Moody, but their rivalry was so compelling because of the contrast in their games and their temperaments. But the reason that we're talking about Helen Jacobs is that she... Was because she was a lesbian. And she lived relatively openly for the time. Helen Jacobs' partner at the time. Imagine that she had a partner that she lived with. Right. Fairly openly in Kentucky. Her partner's name was Henrietta Bingham. And Bingham's great niece wrote a story for Reuters lamenting the fact that Henrietta Bingham was not able to live out loud and experience the progress that gays have made in today's society, in present society, and that she wasn't able to enjoy the love of her life. Helen Jacobs, in public, in private, living together. Mm. It's a fascinating story. This, this woman who wrote this story about her family contributed a lot to our history that may have been lost. So Helen Jacobs was the winner of four U.S. championships, one Wimbledon singles title, a few doubles titles. She was the pioneer of wearing shorts. No women were wearing shorts as part of their tennis kit in those days. And it obviously made so much sense to wear shorts and not a dress. She was known for being more aggressive. She serve and volleyed compared to Helen Wills Moody's patient backcourt play. Think about Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova here, right? Jacobs didn't beat Moody very often, which I've said, but she is uh, one of the great figures of early 20th century tennis. So she finds herself in this relationship with Henrietta Bingham, who is part of this aristocratic family from Kentucky. Her family owns several major newspapers. Her father became the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain during FDR's presidency. And that is how they met at a function in Britain where Henrietta Bingham was helping her father throw the soiree. Right. So Bingham at the time was known for being a wild child. Apparently she possibly seduced famous women, including Tallulah Bankhead. She just enjoyed throwing the parties. She was living a life as a gay woman, uh, not necessarily out-out, but not a... not hiding. This was the jazz age. Uh, Things were a little bit looser. (laughs) And we see these cycles, right? We also get the impression from the story that Bingham's father, the ambassador, kind of isolated them and uh, insulated them from a lot of the discrimination. Like they were kind of untouchable because of him. Mm. And after his death, that's when things started to kind of fall apart. Right. So Jacobs was invited into the family home, spent some time at the embassy when they were living in the UK. Henrietta and Helen decided to move back to the US and settled in Louisville. And Henrietta was introducing Helen as her partner to Kentucky high society. And for a little while it was tolerated, but you know, the twenties were over. It was the mid thirties, depression, things were changing. The culture was not feeling very tolerant in those days. As the war started gearing up, Bingham stayed and worked on the farm out of necessity. 
Helen Jacobs joined the Navy, became a Navy intelligence officer, and their relationship ended. We get this wonderful nugget in this piece from the great niece, where she gives us a snippet of a love letter that was written from Helen Jacobs to Henrietta Bingham. In it, she writes, Such wonderful days are ahead of us, beloved. Horses from Harmony Landing would be world famous, flowers and Labradors from likewise, and we will grow mellow together. We will throw historic, brilliant parties and pool our brains to think up all sorts of fun, and I will be your farm manager when you need one and put you to sleep when you need that too. We can be happy and proud together, darling. I am beside you, behind you, and on top of you, if you want. You can do and say nothing to stop the constant flow of deep and growing love that goes out to you from my heart every time I look at you. Can you imagine receiving such a letter? (laughs) (laughs) I sure as hell have never written you one. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) But sadly, their love story does not have a happy ending. They separated. Jacobs moved into Long Island with a new partner. Henrietta Bingham moved to New York as well with a different partner. She suffered from substance abuse and breakdowns for, for much of the rest of her life, sadly. Due to her drug and alcohol abuse, and also, I'm assuming, due to the fact that she was a lesbian, some of her family members were pressuring her to get a lobotomy. And she managed to stave that off and was able to relocate to New York and start again. But her, her so-called demons stayed with her. But these are the layers and the, the textures to queer histories that we can only really get from descendants in this kind of way, mm-hmm. right? And it's such a, a service that Emily Bingham did to us and the public, the world, to keep this story alive. Right. There, there's a real lack of primary sources for a lot of this stuff because... But also everything had to be a secret for right. a matter of survival. Right. And so do you really hang on to those love letters for fear when of being found could, out? When they could be exposed. And prosecuted mm-hmm. in some instances. And one of the, the prominent tennis personalities who was prosecuted in Germany was Gottfried von Krom. Baron. He was born to this Saxon aristocratic family, literally had a title. I knew him as one part of this legendary tennis match that books have been written about against Don Budge and the 1937 Davis Cup, one of the great matches ever played in tennis, which Von Kram eventually lost, but it was set in this interwar period, staring down the barrel of another major war, at that time, it was evident that that this war was coming. So you have this kind of clash of philosophies and cultures, and then you have these two upper-class men representing their countries and, and battling for, for what? Uh, for sport, for national identity, for honor. All these things are amplifying what was already a great athletic contest. It's a perfect example of sport as politics and in this case played out on a world stage against the backdrop of a rising Nazi Germany that's going to wreak havoc on the world. So this is a year after the Berlin Olympics. We get this story that has never been substantiated. We don't know if it's true, but it goes that Hitler called Gottfried von Kram before the match and says, listen, you better win this or else. We don't know if it happened. He ended up losing it after a long, long battle. 
This is also coming after several years after Germany lost Davis Cup because von Kram conceded a point. I think what you're remembering is is von Kram conceded a point claiming that the ball had hit his racket or the, the racket had touched the net or something that only he can verify. Right. <laughs> it, the people in attendance were like, oh, did that really happen? I didn't quite see that. It prevented von Kram himself from getting to match point. And so that was seen in in some way as a betrayal and a teetering toward treason. In this hyper-politicized sporting arena. Mm-hmm. Because as you pointed out, a year prior, the world had just witnessed the Berlin Games, where so much of that was Nazi propaganda to show the, the Aryan might and the strength of Nazi Germany. We know of Jesse Owens and what he did at those games being used by America as a means to combat that. Imagine that. Jesse Owens, who mm-hmm. had no rights in America at the time in 1936, was being used as a symbol of American greatness and strength in 1936. Mm-hmm. And Hitler himself, with Joe Schmeling, trumped Schmeling against Joe Lewis in those USA-Germany boxing matches for world supremacy. Who is the greatest boxer in the world? And Hitler had enlisted Lenny Riefenstahl to create these fantastical documentaries, Triumph of the Will and Olympia, which was a love letter to Aryan supremacy. And it helped that she pioneered all these filmmaking techniques and that she was a technically brilliant filmmaker. The point of all this is to say this match in 1937 did not exist within a vacuum. There was a lot of recent political upheaval in the world. So that's the stuff that I knew. He had been pressured to join the Nazi party for years. Reportedly, he was even approached by Hermann Goering himself to join, and he still refused to join. He could have been the ideal representative of Nazi Germany, right? He was aristocratic. He had a social status. He looked the part, but he was just not super into it. Now, what I find out through this a little bit of research is that he was charged with sexual deviance because of an affair with a Jewish man named Manasa Erbst, whom he also helped escape Germany. So he provided financial means for his lover to escape Germany because he was Jewish. He escaped to Palestine and von Kram was arrested in 1938. He was tried and convicted as a homosexual. He served, well, he was sentenced to one year in prison, but served six months. And shortly after, he was shipped out to the Eastern Front to fight. His doubles partner was killed in Stalingrad. Von Kram survived, but spent a lot of his prime tennis years either in prison or in the army. After his conviction, Don Budge, against whom he played that epic Davis Cup match, collected signatures for a letter to Hitler to protest his imprisonment. Can you imagine? These were the the several years before the war. And apparently a lot of fellow players joined the the fight, signed the letter, were totally on von Kram's side. And you have to wonder, did they did they believe the charges? Was it motivated by politics, by anti-German sentiment? What like what exactly was going on here? But one of the things that I find kind of flows through all the research that we did is that 
you have a lot of these players' peers sticking up for them when you didn't expect them to. And when it, it goes against our expectations of the time and what people were supposed to accept and be tolerant of, to this day, we think of tennis as a very isolated environment where where these players exist in their own world, so to speak. And I think that is likely what's helped cultivate this this thread through the years that you're talking about. You know, they're on tour with these players and just them for right. such long periods that they form these bonds. And there are certain things that that and cues that they're able to take from their experiences with their compatriots that society looking in can't fully grasp Mm. the other thing is that tennis is seen as a very conservative and traditional sport but what i what i've been learning is so so look at the von Kram situation he was denied entry to wimbledon he was called quote unfit to grace the grass because of his criminal conviction it wasn't about him being a supposed homosexual he was also barred from the u.s open citing uh, more openly the morals charges. So you have tennis authorities censuring somebody. You have tennis players, at least some of them, being more open and supportive of their fellow players. And this is something that I've seen all throughout the 20th century, is that the tennis leadership is deeply conservative, but the players are not as regressive as you might think. In individual circumstances. Right. And a lot of that is about interpersonal relations, about bonds with people. But that's, in a lot of ways, how you change minds, right? You had mentioned that there was no corroboration about the story that Hitler called von Krom before the Davis Cup match and said, you have to win this match. And it was alleged that it was Ted Tingling who made up that story afterwards. Really? Yes. So now's a good time to talk about Ted Tinling. That is, that was the segue. <laughs> I know. Ted Tinling is basically the Bob Mackey of tennis. Who was his share? Well, <laughs> Martina Navratilova. Well. Or the his original well. share was Maria Bueno. Who's... Next question. <laughs> Let me finish. His original muse was Maria Bueno, the great Brazilian legend who we recently lost, yes. sadly. But Ted Tinling was a six foot seven gay British man from Eastbourne, England, who became a very important figure in the early WTA. He held so many different roles in tennis throughout his life. He got his start after being forced to move to Nice to study against his will, hence forced. (laughs) (laughs) And he started taking lessons or playing tennis at the same club where Suzanne Langlau used to play. Mm -hmm. And eventually, we didn't know this was a thing, became her personal umpire for two (laughs) years. I read that and just laughed. How can players have personal umpires? It does run counter to the the impartial nature of umpiring, right? But you have to imagine that Tin Ling was inspired by Suzanne Langlau's style and flair. He went on to design dresses for, I mean, during the 60s and 70s, any major tennis star that you can name, he designed dresses for them. At Wimbledon. Yes. Specifically. Especially at Wimbledon. Apparently, he made quite a habit of pissing off Wimbledon, by the way. Ted designed Ann Smith's famous bodysuit from Wimbledon in the oh. 80s. 
that looked very much like a an Olivia Newton-John Let's Get Physical oh extra. God. It was, but it was very, very controversial because you still see it on TV during Wimbledon coverage. This brings up a hilarious story to me. Ted Tinling was the player liaison at the All England Club for a long time through the 30s and 40s until he designed a pair of lacy bloomers like lacy underpants for Gussie Moran to wear and he was banned. Banned from Wimbledon. Well you know the All England Club should have seen that conflict of interest coming from (laughs) a mile away. It's their own fault. (laughs) He was banned until 1982. That is 33 years, and he was welcomed back as the player liaison. Meanwhile, he was still designing for players. Well, in the meantime, he was pissing them off by designing more racy underwear for Maria Bueno. He eventually became, I mean, he designed the look of women's tennis. He was hired in an official capacity as the designer for the WTA Tour. He also designed Billie Jean King's legendary outfit that she wore to take on Bobby Riggs yep. at the Astrodome in 1973. And you can see that dramatized in the movie. Alan Cumming plays him in Battle of the Sexes. Ted was, again, an openly gay man in, in a time that that was dangerous. He was, by the time the 60s and 70s rolled around, he was of advanced age. Was, he lived through very different eras. Keep in mind, in Britain, Alan Turing, famously played by Benedict Cumberbatch, in the imitation game was arrested and chemically castrated in the 1950s for being gay in Britain. And here we have Ted Tindling causing all this conversation. <laughs> right. But, and he was someone who also served in the British military during World War II. So your military service certainly doesn't protect you. Again, I want to hammer home the point that sport has always been political. Thank you. To be gay has always been political. And when the two intersect, we see this queer history in tennis as being incredibly political and important in changing people's minds, in changing the course of history. I just, I will not suffer the folks who want to just la-di-da about sport and have it just be escapism because the stakes have been high, very high, for many of us, as long as we've been alive Mm -hmm. and our histories have been recorded. I'm glad you mentioned that at this time, because we're going to be moving into kind of the modern era of tennis. And Renee Richards is the first person that I want to talk about. We're just killing the segues on this this special, if I do say so myself. Call us Whoopi Goldberg on The View. No, Whoopi wouldn't couldn't even dream of these segues. <laughs> she really she puts in work though. She tried. <laughs> so Renee Richards be, why this is relevant is because as you said politics and sport are inextricable and to be gay is to be political as well or to be queer or trans. Because Renee Richards fought literally to play the game. She fought through the courts to even be allowed to enter the US Open. Whether or not her individual actions she describe as political is, in retrospect, kind of neither here nor there. It, the net effect of what she did mm-hmm. is incredible. Right. Renee Richards' story is one that has been told many times, many times by her. She's written two autobiographies and one collection of stories. She's still alive. She's in her 80s. 
So she was born in New York, a wealthy Jewish family. Her mother was a psychiatrist and her father was an orthopedist. These are elite intellectual folks in New York. Mm -hmm. She had every opportunity, right? Went to Yale, was the captain of the Yale tennis team. This is when she was known as Richard Raskind. She was in the Navy. But this is an important point to note as well, that for all the incredible things that these folks did and and the place that they hold in the tennis echelon now, in, in that queer history, they were able to do it in large part because of their class, their class standing. Mm-hmm. They still suffered greatly. Absolutely. But we only know of them because of the status that they were born into society. I'm glad you mentioned that because in the stories that we're telling, you notice that all of these people are white and most of these people, not all, come from economic privilege. And those people who are non-white and weren't wealthy, they may have existed and we just don't know their stories because they've never been told and they may have been lost to history. So that's something that I've been keeping in mind throughout this whole process. But Renee Richards was became a preeminent ophthalmologist and eye surgeon. She went to the University of Rochester, which is in my hometown of Rochester, New York. She was an accomplished ophthalmologist even before her gender reassignment surgery. Richard Raskin played tennis as a side gig to incredible schooling, lots of years, training, doing internships seven days a week, and fitting in tennis where he could, essentially. Right. And And so by the time Renee Richards comes on the scene, this is somebody who is incredibly accomplished in another field and is about to change the course of history. Right. What we find out later is that Dr. Richard Raskin had been going to psychoanalysis for years, five times a week. In the midst of this, he was starting a family, married in 1970. And in 1975, he decided to undergo gender confirmation surgery, which is how we how we talk about it now. Back then, it was called sex change operation. Um, I've seen transsexual surgery, gender reassignment surgery. It's incredible how the language has changed and how our base of knowledge has changed in such a very, very short time. We think of that that change in the way we view trans issues as being so rapid in the last few years in particular. But think of the folks, Renee herself, in 1975, who would have been completely in the dark with respect to trans issues. Like, this would literally have come out of the blue. Like, what are you talking about? They would have no frame of reference whatsoever to be able to make sense of what mm. was going on. And I have, I just have to imagine that there was a network. Like, there, there had to have been a community that was very, very underground at that time. The community existed. Richard mm-hmm. talked about while he was married, in the middle of the night, he would dress up and go out on the town. So tell us a little bit about how Rene Richards, the tennis player, came to be a prominent, nationally known figure in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, after her gender confirmation surgery, Renee decided to create a new life in Newport Beach, California, started playing tennis there casually, and then entered a few tournaments as a woman. 
And who recognizes her but Bobby Riggs himself, the loser of the Battle of the Sexes, <laughs> legendary scammer. Hustler. He apparently had zero issues with with Renee, with Dr. Richard Raskin becoming Renee, his old friend. Uh, he saw a hustle. His first thought was, let's go to San Diego and scam some people on the doubles court and make some money. $2,000 to be precise. <laughs> Basically, they hustled some players thinking that Renee wasn't going to be able to play. Allegedly, the doubles opponents wanted to see Renee play a little bit before they accepted the bet. <laughs> and so Bobby tells her, uh, okay, just hit a few balls, but don't go too hard. <laughs> Renee started playing tournaments. She won a tournament in Connecticut, which qualified her to play the women's tour, which was basically a level below the main WTA tour at the time. She entered a tournament in 1976, I believe it was, and 25 players withdrew after the news came out that Renee had been, in, in the language of the time, once a man. We don't speak about that anymore. But there was a lot of uh, panic, trans panic, about playing Renee Richards. There was a lot of slippery slope arguments that, oh no, oh god, men are going to start getting sex change operations to dominate women's tennis, which now we realize is patently ridiculous because it's such a psychologically and physically challenging thing to go through. And it's not something you just decide on a whim. Renee, in her own writings and reflections on her time on tour, has contributed to some of this uh, muddying of the waters because mm. she has since said that she believes that if she had had her surgery in her early 20s, that she could have been the top player. Mm. And that because she was in her 40s, it was, it was never going to happen. She physically couldn't do it. But she thinks that had she had the surgery 20 years before, she could have been, if, if not the top women's player, one of. Mm -hmm. And it would have been an entirely different well, conversation. This would have created an, an absolute crisis. It would. Because keep in mind that this happening in 1976-1977 was not even five years removed from the formation of the WTA Tour. The week-to-week -week hustle, building your own courts pulling them down, going from city to city to try and market and build the tour to then have this point of crisis arise four to five years later to, to question so much about women's tennis. So in 1976, Renee attempted to enter the U.S. Open and she was barred. She was told by the USTA that she would have to pass a chromosome test in order to play. There was some precedent for this in other sports. In 1968, at the Mexico City Games, the International Olympic Committee instituted mandatory chromosome testing for women athletes. This was part of the Cold War, uh, you know, Eastern Bloc athletes supposedly masquerading as women when they were really men. And the, the was... history of that goes all the way back to the early 20th century mm. with the Eastern Bloc countries which is an entirely different thing. Right, which is a totally different conversation. But Renee Richards, being a person of means and education and privilege, took her case 
to the New York State Supreme Court and won. The Supreme Court ruled that the USTA only instituted the chromosome test to specifically bar Renee Richards from playing, not in some holistic effort to make the sport more fair, and that it was an obviously discriminatory violation of the New York State Human Rights Code. The decision reads, it seems clear that defendants knowingly instituted this test for the sole purpose of preventing plaintiff from participating in the tournament. We get to 1977. Renee Richards plays the U.S. Open, loses in the first round to the current Wimbledon champion, Virginia Wade, who seemed fairly good-natured about it. She joked about how she had never received so much publicity before. You can watch that clip on YouTube. (laughs) Uh, So Renee Richards' WTA career isn't incredibly storied. She didn't become a top 10 player. She was in her 40s at the time. But it dovetails in a fascinating way with the stories of both Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King. She had always been supported by Martina and Billie Jean in those early days. And, wait for it, Ilya Nastasi was a supporter spoke out in favor of Renee's right to play at the U.S. Open. Nastasi. (laughs) Glibly saying, (laughs) what are these women afraid of a 44-year-old woman for? Oh, Lord. Of course, it couldn't be like totally... I mean, there's nothing woke about it. (laughs) (laughs) But in that moment, it must have been a great comfort to Renee to have somebody of Nastasi's stature play mixed doubles with her. And and to be frank, a man come out in support Mm -hmm. of her. Billie Jean King and Martino, that was amazing of them to do what they did. But to have a male tennis player when there were so few male tennis players even giving like a hint of support to women's tennis at the time, some were trying to actively undermine it. Were, can still be, are in this day and yes. age. Like yes. that much has not necessarily changed <laughs> right. over the years. And so we get to the late 70s and the early 80s. There are women and men out there, like Margaret Court, saying that there is a rash of lesbian players in the WTA, that it's, it's literally a contagion, that your young daughters should be afraid, that girls are being harassed at WTA events. The locker you know? room is not safe. Right. This is something that Margaret Court still says, but in those days, people took it quite seriously. Before you continue with this next segue, I just want to make a point of this concept that I that I learned about. And listeners can give us feedback as to if it's something that they knew about. But for me, I read so much about queer people wanting to go into the woodwork once they came out. Mm. In the case mm. of Renee Richards in particular, she wants to leave the East Coast, go to the West Coast, go to Newport Beach, California, and start over. And be Renee in private. And here comes Bobby Riggs to let that cat out of the bag. <laughs> right? Right. And what I've, I've, apart from learning what the woodwork was, I came to appreciate that it was so difficult for these athletes, even then, even back then, to keep their private lives private. Obviously, somebody in the, in the situation of Renee Richards, it's a little bit different from coming out as gay. You know, like mm-hmm. you can't physically hide who you are now as a woman, right? right? Like you don't, you're not necessarily having your gayness on display 
when you come out publicly, right? There's a little bit of a, a distinction right, there. Right. But it seemed so difficult for these top athletes to maintain any sort of privacy between their personal lives and public lives as athletes, especially on the WTA Tour. And that became a huge issue for Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova heading into the 80s when both women, two of the biggest stars, one the founder of the WTA, one half of the Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King, Battle of the Sexes match that was a huge television spectator event, put women's tennis on the map. And Martina Navratilova, who was one of the greatest players of her generation of all time, would become. They were not immune from the scandal of being gay. They were not allowed to live their queer lives in private. They were outed in really salacious ways. Mm -hmm. It's through not... lawsuits, through malicious backstabbing attacks. It's it's wild. It's a it's the stuff of tabloids. It's not the the empowering coming out story, the People magazine cover story that we have now. So I think we can trace the beginning of this new era in the spring of 1981. Billie Jean King was sued by her personal secretary and lover, Marilyn Barnett, who played a role in Battle of the Sexes, was played by Andrea Riceborough. Barnett sued Billie Jean King for palimony, basically saying that at the end of their relationship, Billie Jean King owed her something akin to spousal support. Obviously, when the lawsuit was filed, this became public. Billie Jean admitted to having a lesbian affair with Marilyn. Keep in mind, Billie Jean was still married at yes. the time. She said, yes, I had this affair. It was a mistake. I love my husband. I'm not a lesbian. This is something that that was lost for me for a long time. I didn't realize that at the time, Billie Jean King was not really out for many years. She was not officially out for a long time after that 1981 lawsuit. Until the mid-90s, she did the People magazine thing, she came out officially as a lesbian, but her marriage to Larry King lasted until 1987. The court eventually threw out the lawsuit. The judge called Marilyn Barnett's behavior unconscionable and likened it to extortion, but uh, the, the damage was done. I mean, Billie Jean lost uh, untold millions in sponsorships. The WTA was under siege at the time. Meanwhile, you have an up-and-coming champion, Martina Navratilova, who had, in 1975, defected from Czechoslovakia at great risk to herself at the prospect of never seeing her family again. Because, you know, we know now that the Iron Curtain fell in 1991 or 1989. But at the time, Martina had to accept that I may never see my family again if I defect the United States. So this had happened in the mid-70s, and then she's faced with the prospect of coming out as a lesbian while trying to attain U.S. citizenship. She had been stateless for six years. Mm -hmm. I naively assumed that once she defected from the Soviet Union, that she had some protections in the U.S. It, it really was brought to the fore for me reading her talk about traveling to different countries and applying for visas and having to declare that she was stateless. Mm. And the security that she must have felt the U.S. citizenship 
symbolized and embodied in reality for her. I can't imagine what that fret and worry must have been for her. Because you're still living in a country where the U.S., being gay is not something that's accepted. So you are here as the arch nemesis of the girl next door, fighting her on a week-to-week basis, and you're asking this country to accept you so that you don't have to go where? I don't know. Where would she go at that point? Right. You know, like her sexuality, and she talks about this in, in a lot of the interviews that she gave subsequent, was something that she feared would jeopardize her citizenship application. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, throughout the Cold War, gays had been purged from the military, from the U.S. military. There was this idea that gay people were dangerous because they could be compromised, because they could be blackmailed, which is sort of this double oppression because you're (laughs) you're saying that they could be blackmailed because they are so loathed in the society, but you are literally acting to perpetuate that loathing. So this is the environment in which Martina Navratilova was forced to reckon with her sexuality in public, being a major public figure. Keep in mind, too, that their coming out was a direct threat to the survival of the WTA tour Mm -hmm. because nobody knew exactly how the top sponsors would react would Avon continue to be the title sponsor or the main sponsor of the WTA tour if two of their biggest stars were lesbians? Right. And to the point that the outings, we can't even call it a coming out for Billie Jean and Martina. Their outings with the survival of the WTA potentially under threat with Billie Jean and Martina being outed. We have Chrissy Everett the American darling, girl next door, let's be honest, conservative darling. Absolutely. You know, like she Her- is one half of that rivalry where she is the the sweetheart versus Kami Martina. And we have Chrissy writing an op-ed in defense of Billie Jean King in 1981. It's literally called In Defense of Billie Jean. She laments the fact that tennis players cannot have a private life. And that the sordid obsession with people's sexual lives is just crazy to her. She goes on to say, who are we to judge if somebody is gay? Can you imagine the top women's player in 1981, somebody who holds that status in in America's mind's eye, to go and write something like that in defense of Billie Jean King? To say and buck the national thought of gays being abhorrent mm-hmm. and a threat and this is and devious to say that let her have her private life and do what she wants to do and who are we to judge her those are some incredibly powerful words it really situates chrissy in a whole new light i think i agree i i actually got emotional reading her essay because i thought about what what she was faced with as well. And I I realize this is not about her, but we talk about allies and what it means to be an ally. I think that she showed such integrity in writing what she did. And we have to link to this because this is like a piece of tennis history that that I had never read before. But the just the character it took to stand up for fellow athletes and friends who were gay. This is a Reagan Republican 
you know, Chrissy Everett was a, was a darling of conservative America at the time. And I think she stood to lose a lot as well. But this is like, this goes to show when you form close personal relationships with people, you, you learn to, to understand what makes them tick. You know, Billie Jean did so much for her. She, Chrissy was so, and still is so reverent about being the, the first beneficiary of Billie Jean's sacrifice. She realizes that she had the career that she had because other women came before her. And this is a topic for another day, but this is mm-hmm. what's lost in the current crop of WTA players. <laughs> but I, I don't want to frame it like that. No, like, but there has to be a transference. Okay. And how we get that transference is a matter for a whole other time. And it's complicated across countries and cultures. Mm-hmm. But there's something missing. Like that Chrissy, you know, she was the initial beneficiary, as you said. But she got it. And right. somehow that story has been diluted and doesn't carry the same heft anymore. Mm. And it took us reading this op-ed that I'm guessing so many people don't even know exist to really feel the weight of it again. Right. And it's interesting because the the content of the essay is fundamentally conservative. It's the idea that what people do behind closed doors should stay behind closed doors. And it's we shouldn't ju- it is, exactly. Uh, it's not it's not revolutionary, but it's I feel like in that time it's like you have a major celebrity speaking this way, accepting her gay peers in a sport that could be threatened by sponsors pulling out. So there is like a sort of a business case for what she said. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the cynical side would say, well, it was a self-preservation as well. Was she trying to preserve the tour? And even if that were part the case, I don't really care. No, because it's not like she waited to see, like, which way is the wind blowing? You know, like, which way is public opinion going? She decided to stand by her friends and her colleagues. And she has said that she doesn't consider herself brave for doing it. Right. This has been put to her before to say, well, wow, wow, Chrissy. Like, that was incredible. What you did was so brave. Thank you. And she said, well, it was right. Mm. It wasn't brave. So all of this momentous change is happening in the summer of 1981. Martina Navratilova is living in kind of a glass closet at the time. She was living with Rita Mae Brown, who was a writer who was a very visibly gay activist. For a few years. Right. And they were, you know, she said that they were just friends. They were roommates, whatever. They bought this lavish mansion in Charlottesville, Virginia. They were living together. So everybody at that time and to this day still knows somebody in their family where there's a woman with a roommate. Right. Like this is a friend, their companion, their these are the the coded words that we have used for centuries, right? But Martina sat down with a daily news reporter named Steve Goldstein. She knew it was being taped, it was on the record, and at the end of the interview she asked Please don't use this yet. Please don't publish it. I am waiting for my citizenship hearing, and I want to wait until I'm ready to do this myself. And in the interview, she talked about her sexual orientation, which at the time she identified as bisexual. She talked about her fears that her coming out would jeopardize the future of women's tennis, that the top sponsors would pull out. It was very personal. She had just lived through 
the gay witch hunt against Billie Jean King. She had seen Mm -hmm. what Billie Jean went through with her outing, with the lawsuit against Billie Jean King. And so that was a, a concern as well. Right. She talked about her breakup with Rena Mae Brown, which, well, that is a story. Is that a story for today or another day? We uh, will implore you <laughs> to do your own research. We will link to stuff and you can read it. I don't know if we need to be that it's, salacious yeah, on this episode. It is salacious, but uh, that is a wild ride from start to finish, <laughs> let me tell you. But she talked about her breakup with Brown. She moved in with Nancy Lieberman very shortly after breaking up with Rita Mae Brown. And again, at the time, Lieberman, who was the greatest basketball player of her generation, this is a topic for a whole other episode. What a fascinating person. Mm -hmm. Someone who, had she been born in the 80s, for example, may have dominated the WNBA for years But again, Lieberman identified as straight publicly. She and Martina were just friends. So it goes. I don't want to put words into Martina's mouth, but my my feeling on the situation, my understanding is that Martina, we know her now as this bold, outspoken person. And she still was at that time. Like she was not living her life entirely closeted or even partially closeted. Right. There were a lot of serious factors for her to consider, be it Nancy Lieberman's outing, be it the survival of the WTA tour, be it her upcoming citizenship interview. Mm. There were a lot of things outside of her control and people depending on her that were tied to her coming out. That it's not a black and white issue to say, well, why didn't Martina just come out? There were really hefty considerations for her. And in the end, it wasn't entirely her choice. The New York Daily News ran with that story really before Martina wanted it to come out. The article was called Martina Fears Avon's Call If She Talks. It was run on July 30th, 1981. Martina saw it as a betrayal. Uh, She thought she had an understanding with the supporter, but she was effectively outed and Avon decided to think on it. They were the WTA's big sponsor at the time, and they did eventually pull out. The understanding that Martina had with the reporter was, well, hold off on publishing this until my citizenship stuff is sorted. Mm -hmm. And so the reporter got back to her after she was granted citizenship and said, well, my editor's up my ass about this story. I mean, it's a huge story. Right. Uh, Can we can we go ahead? And she said, well, no, now, now is not the time still. And they went ahead anyway. Clearly, Women's Tennis survived. That brings us all the way to 1999, the Australian Open, Amelie Moresmo's breakout. Clearly, a lot of things happened in the world in that period that we kind of glossed over. That's why this is a partial history. (laughs) There were a lot of WTA players in particular who were able to exist quietly out on tour in that time. Mm-hmm. Gigi Fernandez, Yana Novotna, a lot of players who were able to reap the benefits of the turmoil of the 80s that Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova suffered through. 99 brings us to a really different time. Emily Moresmo broke out at this Australian Open. She beat Patty Schneider. She beat Lindsay Davenport in the semifinals to face the head 
woman in charge, Martina Angus, in the final. The head teen in charge. <laughs> right. Maresmo was never in. No. It, you know, there... <laughs> she was a truly remarkable figure mm-hmm. for that reason. She, from the jump, was out and proud and a symbol of what had come before. Right. And it was it was a decision by her to to not dance around that. She didn't want that to be something that defined her career, that dogged her throughout her career. And because of the people who came before her, this was something that was a possibility. Of course, because of her appearance and because of her clear identity as a gay woman, she faced uh, some bullshit that a lot of other people don't have to. A lot of cheap shots. Yeah. Lindsay Davenport, having lost to her in the semifinal that year, claimed that Emily was playing was like playing a guy. You know, I I knew this. That I, ha- I had read this in Venus Envy by John Wertheim a long time ago, but it's making me mad again. In her press conference after losing the semifinals, Davenport casually said that playing Moresma was like playing a guy. Right. And it read, and it sounds a lot like how she carried on with Venus and the beads at the U.S. <laughs> Open. This was... Lindsay was very casual at that point in her life in saying some unkind things, Yeah. to be, to be fair. Of course, we can, from our perspective and through the lens of history, these things let us form an opinion that may not be entirely well-rounded. Like, I have a lot of respect for Lindsay now, but that doesn't paint her in the best light. And the reason it made me mad was that Lindsay Davenport is a six-foot-two woman known for her power game one of the founders of mary carillo's big babe tennis and she's saying that a five foot nine woman across the net to her was like playing a guy maresma who was not even known for her power game who possessed power but was more well known for finesse and her spins right it was a dog whistle it was it's crazy like Lindsay davenport is not somebody who could ever be cowed by power anyway Martina Hingis was more openly derisive and homophobic, joking in German that Moresmo's here with her girlfriend. She's half a man. I don't know really like what to add to that. It was said. I guess she was saying it in a joking tone, but it's offensive. She was basically a child at the time. She mocked everybody. She was rude. This was was her. That was her persona. This was her after winning the final. Right. So the 90s, especially the late 90s, were a much more friendly time, obviously, for gay women in sport. But you you were still up against this stuff from the top stars of the game. We read this fascinating academic essay about this, which we will also link to, that said that Moresmo came of age in a time when sponsors were willing to stay by her and actually market to a queer audience. They were actually able to use her queer identity as a, something that that her body was a brand yeah that there was actually appeal in that she was an out lesbian and that she looked a certain way that she had a body that connoted strength and power and and beauty to a lot of people that mm-hmm. they were able to recognize in a cynical kind of way that there was money to be made from folks who were not willing to fall victim to the queer panic. Mm-hmm. That rather than shy away from Moresmo, there was beauty to be found in Moresmo. 
So certainly at the beginning, her presence inspired this kind of lesbian panic among fellow tennis players. And the press, I mean, for its part, was happy to paint Martina Hingis as a homophobe. Like they were happy to point the finger at women who would dog her out. But I think Moresmo's body, her expression of gender, her shoulders, you you hear about the shoulders over and over. Mm -hmm. These things are confusing to people because they're at odds with what a woman is supposed to look like. It got me thinking too, going back to the Navratilova-Evert rivalry, that perhaps while Martina never felt loved or as loved as she would have liked in her early career, she was also not as threatened in the way that Moresma was by the public and her peers because her body was a necessary part of that rivalry. Mm. Her being viewed as the communist enemy of the American princess was a necessary part of that rivalry and what made it compelling and what it needed to survive. Whereas Amelie is here as a standalone burgeoning tennis player that nobody has any idea what to make of with no reference point. There's no immediate rival to contrast her with to make her more palatable, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. It's almost like, so Martina, Billie Jean, these women had a traditional coming out. It wasn't voluntary in their case, but it it was a humiliation. From a historical perspective, it almost makes them sympathetic because of what they had to go through. Mm-hmm. Amelie, for her part, was out. She she was never not out. Like, it, it wasn't the typical celebrity coming out story. She right? wasn't walking it back. She wasn't saying, well, I'm actually just bisexual. I'm still married to right. my man. I'm not trying to make this more palatable for you. I'm actually, to use your own words, shoving my gayness down your throat. Mm-hmm. And at that time, apparently, you know, Nike stood by her and figured that they could make money off this. And they did. (laughs) Like, they, at this time, sponsors were finally openly courting gay and lesbian consumers. To a degree. Yes. Interestingly, the WTA itself has not really embraced that to this day. No. And even a, a very superficial thing, like corporations changing their logo for the month of June into a rainbow. So we see it with Tennis Canada, with the Toronto Blue Jays, with... uh, Damn near every other professional sport at this point. Yes. The WTA hasn't really embraced queer culture. Of course it's embraced its queer icons, like Martina and Billie Jean, but is is it openly targeting its product to gay and lesbian audiences? Is it owning its queer history? Right. There is no sport in the world that has as rich a queer history as the WTA. It was founded by the mother, I think, of the modern women's professional movement mm. in sports. You have that person, Billie Jean King, as the Grand Marshal of the New York City Parade this weekend. Right. As she has come a long way. Like, <clears throat> we, we have come a long way. But the point is... These women, Martina, Billie Jean, they're still very active in tennis. And yet, we still get the general sense that the WTA shies away from branding itself as being too aligned with queerness. Mm -hmm. And part of that is wrapped up in 
the male gaze that in order to sell the WTA, you have to get men to watch and you have to have men ogling these women. It's why when Amelie Moresmo came out in the era of Anna Kornikova, and this is not to dog on Anna Kornikova, but she was still the person that they would rather market than somebody who is so fresh to the game and a breakout star on such a huge mm-hmm. stage. And we've seen that continue through the years with Jeannie Bouchard. Like the WTA right. and professional sports, professional women's sport to a large degree will almost always privilege the the presumed beautiful blonde bombshell over athletic achievement because of queerness. And that's still a tragedy, given all that has come before and all the suffering that went into building this tour. And Marisma was still playing during the the Strong is Beautiful campaign, right? Like in the late, the first decade of the 2000s. That was WTA's marketing campaign, Strong is Beautiful. I wonder like how far that goes. How, how strong is too strong? <laughs> how muscular is, is, uh, is too masculine? I think the WTA does face a unique challenge. It's, you know, it's not an evil empire. It's, it's difficult to market, market women's sports. It is undermined by its rival leagues. It's undermined by television. It faces a lot of challenges. It's undermined by men, not yes, just their rival absolutely. leagues. And we can pop, and I say the rival. We can position league. the ATP yes. as a rival league. But I, I wonder, like, if you openly court queer audiences, are you necessarily alienating other segments? At this point, like in 2018, do you have to be one or the other? And one of the big takeaways to that point in doing the research for this episode is while we've we felt for a while now, especially in the last decade, that we are everywhere, we being queer people. <laughs> right. If we've been everywhere for decades, like we have built this house to a large degree. So why aren't we celebrated more? Mm, okay. But back to Amelie Moresmo for a second. What we witnessed with her career, especially at the start, was the trickle-down effect and the, the legacy of Renee Richards. It's, as far as a trans panic. It's there's so, many so different, complicated, right? Yeah, like, there's so many kinds of queer panic. There's gay panic, lesbian <laughs> panic, trans panic. We cause a lot of panic. <laughs> and we also see the conflation of gender with sex. Because... Amelie Moresmo is not a trans woman, yet people view her as a man. But that is not her. Right, or having masculine qualities. Her like, being a woman is her sex. It's not her gender. So among like tennis commenters or fans or whatever, like sexuality tends to be conflated with gender expression, which is conflated with gender identity which is then conflated with biological sex. So all of these things that in like the post-structural Judith Butler gender studies world, all of these things are distinct. They're the same thing, right? So if you are a lesbian, you must exhibit these masculine qualities, which must mean you view yourself as a man, which is at odds with your biological sex as female. These things are confusing. They confront the gender order directly and that's why they piss people off and that's where the layperson like a Lindsay Davenport or Martina Hingis at that time would make those comments 
because right. they're expressing their confusion. That's the best way they know how mm-hmm. to express something that doesn't make sense to them. And to me, gay male athletes are fit into this, especially if their bodies are traditionally masculine. So you're gay, which means you are effeminate, but your body looks extremely masculine, which is at odds with this supposed gender identity I have assigned to you. Like it's... It's a mindfuck. It messes with what we have been taught from birth about how men and women respectively behave and are expected to express themselves aesthetically, physically, emotionally, all these things. And uh, that is hard to confront for a lot of people. In an endeavor like sport where your work is purely physical, where it's centered in the body, these things are so fraught. And this is why perhaps we haven't seen as many out gay men in sports and in tennis because the stakes with respect to society and the the ostracizing is that much greater. I mean, we see in homophobic societies, including our own, that gay women are often allowed to, frankly, survive. Not necessarily thrive, but are sometimes ignored, sometimes tolerated to a degree, and gay men are still persecuted. This is not true in every homophobic mm-hmm. society. But women's gayness is seen as one kind of expected and two not as threatening to the fabric of society. Right, right. That masculinity is is something fundamental to to our culture, to our survival as a species even. Is it seen as evolutionary? And this is where somebody like Moresmo can really be situated as upsetting the gender norms and the expectations of society. But then again, once Moresmo continues with her career, and we saw this to an extent with Rene Richards, things kind of settle down, don't they? Mm. And so does it become a matter of the initial fear of confronting the hysteria? And that's what's keeping gay men in the closet. Right. Because traditionally it's been the sports that aren't as quote-unquote masculine. The the sports that aren't seen as macho, where we've had openly gay male athletes. And you can make the Mm. argument that tennis is one of those sports. And so it becomes a lot more... It's not a team sport. That helps. We've talked previously that the locker room and team sport environments becomes a very unsafe environment for a lot of gay men as they progress through sport, from youth sport to college sport to professional sport. That to make it to the professional level in a team sport, the homophobia and the and the expectations of your masculinity kind of weed you out through the years. But in an individual sport like tennis, it, it made me wonder for a while, why is it that we haven't had more openly gay tennis players, men, over the years. Mm. And perhaps it's that initial fear that's the biggest deterring factor because the pressure from society is that much greater on men preserving and performing their masculinity than it is for women being seen as lesbians Mm. because it's kind of expected. In sport, at least. In sport, yes. So I think that kind of brings us to, you know, what's next? What, What does the future hold for queer athletes in tennis? Everybody knows that there is not a single openly gay male athlete in tennis. 
this has been written about extensively. I, I believe that it will happen and probably soon. Like some of the lessons, I don't know if there are lessons from this, but I think one of the through lines that I see in doing this research is that there, there will be much more resistance from the elites, from the sort of tennis infrastructure than there will be from this person's peers. There will be players there, who will pop off in press, yes. who will bring their biases from whichever background they come from. And we know who they are by name uh, already. You know, mm-hmm. some of them have preemptively done it. But by and large, the barriers are external forces. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was fascinating about doing research for this episode is that there was so much that confounded what I thought I knew about history. Like, I was reminded that throughout even very oppressive regimes, there is resistance everywhere in the most unexpected places. Like this is a fundamental concept of post-structuralism, if you've had the misfortune to go to graduate school (laughs) in critical theory. Resistance is located everywhere. Like everywhere there is power, there is also resistance. And that's something that is really empowering for me personally. Specifically in this time, and it's very timely Mm. in this day and age. And I don't mean resistance in like the hashtag anti-Trump resistance. I mean, I mean, even in a very personal sense, any sort of pushback against institutional power. In the interpersonal ways that we saw resistance throughout this episode, Mm -hmm. be Don Budge corralling fellow players to write to Hitler on behalf of Von Kram or Chrissy Everett writing that op-ed in defense of Billie Jean King. Mm -hmm. These are simple yet huge ways in which people can resist on a daily basis that might not seem to have as big an effect, but history tells us that it does. Mm -hmm. And there are people all around us willing to make those, those strides and those changes in seemingly insignificant ways that buck the trend, that kind of go under the radar. Like when you come out and you fear for years that, oh my God, I can't tell my grandmother, and then she's the most supporting member of the family (laughs) and it bucks every stereotype and idea that you you held through those years in the closet that her years of living through all these conservative eras would preclude her from being able to welcome you that's one anecdotal way Mm -hmm. but there are also people doing really life-threatening forms of resistance as well right One last takeaway I want to touch on from doing this episode is Renee Richards, after she finished her professional tennis career in her 40s, went on to coach Martina Navratilova and became a very integral part of Martina's transformation, along with Nancy Lieberman, into a world beater in the early 80s. She would sit there in the stands and take notes of all of Martina's matches and present her the evidence of what she was doing and give her strategy. And we know of basketball players who watch tape, right? That's a very famous example of Mm. it. You finish the game, you go back and you watch what went wrong. That's what Renee Richards brought to Martina. She brought a lot of discipline. And it was something that I didn't really realize that Martina's early career was marred by such indiscipline in relation to what we know of her now. And the other part of that was 
we talk all the time about how incestuous tennis is in terms of everybody knowing everybody, be it former players going on to being tennis commentators, working for the the tennis superstructure, but then coaching players at the same time. And there are all these relationships that exist that we don't see. That was here in this episode. There was Renee Richards coaching Martina, Martina Navratilova. There was Renee Richards trying to go into the woodwork after her gender confirmation surgery and happening upon Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs <laughs> uh-huh. in Newport Beach, California, who is just years removed from playing the Battle of the Sexes, the most publicized tennis match in the history of tennis, right? He's looking for his next thing and he happens upon Renee Richards. <laughs> and he has the tie to Billie Jean King at the formative stages of the WTA Tour when everything is in flux and so much is on the line. There's so much intertwining. And Ted Tinling, who umpired for the great Suzanne Langlois, who became one of the, really, the most important figures of the early years of women's tennis, uh, touched basically every major female champion of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's just incredible. Do you have a final thought that you want to leave the listeners with? yeah. The moral of the story is that we are everywhere. Queer people are everywhere. We've survived for, all the panics. For many of us, that's encouraging. For some of you, that could be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but wh- whether you like it or not, queer people have been uh, an integral part of tennis in the 20th century and in the 21st century. Like, we're not going anywhere. And this is Pride Month. This is what I want to celebrate. I want to celebrate queer people who never came out of the closet for any reason. Queer people who lived visibly. I want to thank people who are LGBTQ and questioning who are listening to this podcast. The history of queer people is a lot of struggle. And too often in recent times, pride has become depoliticized. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. And so part of this special is to celebrate the politics in our queerness be it visible behind the scenes known or never known because people have suffered we existed then we exist now and we will continue to be queer and political in the future and importantly at every point of suffering there was resistance on that note thank you for listening and resisting with us (laughs) My name is Jonathan. If this is the first time that you're tuning into listening to The Body Serve because it's a, a standalone special episode, welcome. Please feel free to check out back episodes. We have quite a few at this point. 126, to be exact. <laughs> yeah. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Jonathan at, at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. That's with two L's and two T's. The podcast is on Twitter at The Body Serve, as well as on Instagram at The Body Serve. Thanks for listening and happy Pride. Till next time.